0: Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, uh, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkharan. Uh, more importantly, today I have uh, the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Slooper, who's Associate Professor at Western Washington University. Um, we'll be speaking about a, fascis- uh, sorry, a fascinating work. It's so fascinating, I'm tongue-tied introducing it. A fascinating uh, work, about a fascinating work. Um, uh, his book is called Early Tantric Medicine, Snakebite mantras and healing in the garuda tantras michael welcome back to the podcast
1: yeah thank you very much for having me
0: so um there certainly is a backstory in terms of how this book came about um, maybe tell us the primary object of the book and 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 the discovery you made that allowed this book to be possible
1: sure um yeah I'll, yeah first say a little bit about what the book is about and then i'll tell you the longest story about how it came to be um, but yeah, it's like the, the title suggests this is a book about, uh, an early, early medieval medical system, uh, that's rooted in tantric rituals and mantras and some herbal medicine. Um, and I'm specifically looking at, uh, the medicine for snake bite and within that, you know, rather specific topic, I'm looking at, uh, the use of mantras to heal snake bite. So, um, it's kind of an interesting mix because uh, a lot of people have studied history of medicine and a lot of people have studied history of religion. But this this combines them in, a, in an interesting way that, um, you know, people in one of those areas or the other didn't really come to to this this topic. Um, so let's see. Yeah. I mean, snake bite may sound like this really obscure sort of thing, and I've even had people in India when I'm, you know, going there to give talks, they're like, you know, you know, snake bite, really, that sounds very colonial, like you're exoticizing India by saying, you know, we have all these snake bites. But, you know, actually the, the data is, is, is there to show that there's a lot of snake bites happening in India, um, more than any other place in the world, um, you know, even other countries combined. Um, and about 45,000 to 50,000 uh, people dying every year from from snake bite you know now in the context of of india this place with uh, you know almost a billion and a half people uh, 50,000 people dying of snake bite is is nothing and and yet it's still a lot of people it's still it you know there's there's more to it than just the people that are dying there's people that are permanently disabled so it really is um an important topic in some sense, um, and, and it has been an in, in interest of the culture uh, for literally thousands of years. So that's kind of the, the gist of the book. Um, so let's see, how did I come to it? Yeah, do you want the short version or the long version?
0: Well, for me, it's always a scenic route. Um, but whatever, you know, you've stumbled upon something in your research that is very important. And so I think folks would enjoy the story of how that came about.
1: Okay, sure. So, um, you know, it really was about 10 years of my life actively working on this, you know, and that wasn't the only thing that I was doing in those 10 years, but, but it was like my main focus. Um, but, but then when I reflect on this, I, I think there was another decade before that that really was, was leading up to it. So I'm going to start in middle school, which seems kind of silly. Um, I've never like told the public this. this
0: Ma- the Michael. Yes, I studied the Puranas. So there's a backstory <laughs> to the backstory to the backstory. So by all means, let's start in middle school. <laughs>
1: okay. So I was into like magic, ma- performing magic tricks, um, you know, doing doing a coin, making a coin disappear, making a dollar bill float in the air, you know, these sorts of illusions. Um, and, you know, this was just a hobby. But from there, you know, I hear about these people that claim to be practicing real magic. So um, I started studying this, you know, and I, I'm not studying it in some kind of um, naive way. Like I, I've been skeptical about magic all the way through, and I mean, maybe that partly starts with me starting as a performer, you know, doing this as as something that I know that there's a trick behind it. And yet, at the same time, I'm, I'm I, I became sympathetic to these claims for real magic, and so I think that this led me in a very circuitous way to this study of of religious medicine, which we could call magic. I mean, this is a big complex topic that scholars love to debate, like, you know, is magic an appropriate word to use? Um, But I can't help but use it because there's so many similarities between things that we call magic, like spells and, you know, supernatural actions that can't be explained by natural laws and these sorts of things. And the way that some of the tantric medicine is thought to work. So there's that connection. Um, Yeah. I mean, so from there, you know, as as a young teenager, I, you know, I, I started studying other traditions of magic. I started studying Western esotericism very frequently those traditions would be referring to India um, and referring to Tantra, so I, that was sort of on my radar. Um, I also was was interested in uh, Native American healing traditions and shamanism, and I apprenticed with several um, different Native American shamans, uh, learned healing techniques from them. I became a massage therapist at one point when I was about 18 years old um, and practiced on people and used visualization techniques. And, you know, at this point, okay, Tantra was sort of on my radar, but I really didn't know what it was. And so it's startling to me once I I get into the research for this book about a decade ago, that, um, or more than that now, uh, that how similar some of the techniques that the Tantric doctors were using to heal people were to these visualization techniques from, from the Americas. So um, all of this kind of sets, sets the stage for me that it made me sympathetic to the worldview uh, promoted by these early medieval texts. Um, and I want to just, you know, reemphasize sympathetic doesn't mean that I believed it all. Okay. Like, um, you know, as I said, I've been skeptical the whole way through. Um, but I don't think that it's like an either or thing. You don't either believe in it or disbelieve it. I think that one can be curious about something even if one doesn't accept it as as the whole truth. I think that there's you know truth is multi-layered and so that's the kind of perspective that that led me to this uh this topic. When I was an undergraduate um oh, sorry. No, that's uh, fine. When I was undergraduate I was I was interested in Tantra, you know, I heard more about it in my academic classes and I read some of David Gordon White's books. Um, but I kind of set it aside because I was, I was pretty set on going to UC Berkeley and working with the Goldman's. Uh, they specialize in mythology and you know, psych, psychoanalytic studies and gender studies. And all of this was, was things that I was genuinely interested in. So I just kind of set Tantra to the side. Um, and I planned on working on gender in the Mahabharata, you know, analyzing myths and, and, and stories, uh, especially with regard to gender. So all of this shifted, like it pivoted 180 degrees uh, back to Tantra because the very first year that I started graduate school, and I had been there for a couple of years as an undergraduate um, studying Sanskrit, Uh, but the very first year in graduate school, um, the Goldmans were on sabbatical in India. And so uh, the replacement Sanskrit teacher was Somdevasudeva, who is a specialist in Tantra. And so, um, you know, he had he, he gave us courses in reading manuscripts and this was also something that was just super fascinating to me. This, this idea that one can make a living by reading old manuscripts and sort of like unearthing new knowledge was just, uh, you know, what were really motivated me in, in the study of Sanskrit. And so, um, yeah, this, this just sort of set me off in a, in a different direction and back in this, this direction of, of Sanskrit. So, um, yeah, in the course of that first semester, I, I came to Dave, uh and I showed him a list of manuscripts I was thinking about ordering from Nepal, ordering copies of. Uh, they have it all, they have like tens of thousands of manuscripts on microfilm there. And he saw the, the one that I ended up working on, uh, Kriya Kala and he said immediately, you know, order all the manuscripts of that one because he knew that that, that text had been referred to. Uh, in the eleventh century uh, in a in a commentary on the natra Tantra, um Professor Alexis Sanderson, who was somdevasudeva's Vasudeva's teacher at oxford um had had recognized that text as something important, so it's demonstrably early and it's inherently interesting so I decided to to work on that and, and so that was the start of the the ten years of working on it in in earnest
0: and so um how do you come across the Garuda Tantras?
1: Yeah, so I mean that was basically just that text. Um, I didn't know what the Garuda Tantras were, um, but you know because of Dave's really enthusiastic recommendation, I ordered those manuscripts and I started reading them. You know, I started transcribing one of them to start with, and uh, reading them and trying to make sense of them. Uh, that text also has a great deal of material on the Bhuta Tantras, which is uh, something that I'm working on now as, as a separate project. Um, but I decided to focus on the Garuda Tantra stuff be- probably because of the similarities that I saw with my previous interest in shamanism and, and healing techniques from the Americas. Um, so that's that's kind of how I went in that direction of the Garuda Tantras. Um, It's also just like, you know, people think of Garuda, they they hear that name and they think, you know, kind of a knee jerk reaction, Garuda is the Mount of Vishnu. And like, you know, there's not much more to be said about it. You know, people consider him a minor God. Um, But I found that like, none of that applies to these texts. And actually it doesn't apply very well to most of what I encountered when I was surveying thousands of years of Sanskrit literature. Um, In the Vaishnava context, certainly uh, Garuda is the Mount of Vishnu and, you know, he's Vishnu's primary devotee and all of that. But there's all these other texts, the the Shaiva Shaiva Tantras, the Puranas, uh, even way back in the Veda, Garuda is seen as this independent deity. Um, This flows over into other traditions, uh, you know, in in Buddhism and Jainism, Garuda shows up and um, is, is, basically an independent deity or he's presented as as a devotee of the buddha for example um so all of this was mysterious to me and uh you know intriguing just because it was it sort of flew in the face of conventional wisdom about about this uh this god
0: surely we see um it's not uncommon to see a, a folding in uh, um uh, uh, Vaishnavization or Shaivization, if those are words of various figures such as Garuda or even Ganesha or etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So in the text that you're studying, uh, who is Garuda?
1: Yeah, well, Garuda is basically the same as Shiva and Bhairava. Um, so actually, I can read you a passage to go with that question because um, it's, it's describing what the practitioner will do in a particular ritual. Uh, let me find it here. Yeah, so one does all this preparation i mean there's there's a lot <laughs> a lot of background that I could explain about this but but basically one is doing a whole lot of preparation, working with these mantras um working with tantric visualizations um and then at at one point of the ritual it's this is part of the preparation to actually heal a case of snake bite um according to the tradition um it picks up here where one is visualizing oneself as either Bhairava or Garuda. Um, And it sort of blends them like there's not really much of a difference. So I'll just read a a page here from the book. Uh, The stage of the ritual, this stage of the ritual marks the transition between preparation and application. One visualizes oneself as Shiva in his frightening ten-armed Bhairava form, pervading the entire universe with a fierce and penetrating fire. Next comes a crucial verse, and I quote: At the time of the ritual, always visualize yourself as pairava to destroy demons, or indeed as the terribly powerful Tarksha, which is another name of Garuda, to destroy snakes. So it's almost as if there's there's these two faces that Shiva has: Pairava and Garuda, and the practitioner identifies with one or the other, depending on what they want to do. So if if they're working as an exorcist, then they identify as as Bhairava in order to have authority over spirits. Whereas if they're treating uh, poisons, then that's Garuda's domain. And so um, one identifies with him in that way. Uh, Visualize, so this is a visualization then that the practitioner is doing. Visualize your feet in the nether regions and wings pervading the directions. The seven worlds are on your chest with Brahmanda reaching your throat. So that's like the entire known universe up, up to the throat. Uh, visualize your head extending beyond that as beginning with the Rudra Tattva and ending with the Isha Tattva, these, these higher realms of reality. Uh, Sadashiva and the three Shaktis stand on the crest of your head. The best sadhaka or prakti- tantric practitioner visualizes Tarksha as manifest as both transcendent and imminent, pervading the worlds with three eyes, dreadful appearance, destroying poison and snakes, devouring Nagas, and with a terrifying mouth as an embodiment of the Garuda mantra and blazing like the fire of time. So here Garuda is no mere king of birds or vehicle for another god. He's coterminous with the highest reaches of the universe itself. One even gets the sense that he transcends Bhairava's function because of the chapter ends with the statement that snakes as well as various kinds of demonic beings flee on the sight of such a man possessed by Garuda. Has he taken over Bhairava's role too? But perhaps this isn't an issue because Garuda and Bhairava were conceived as one and the same being. So that's you know that's that's my answer to who is Gerda in this context that he really is the highest principle of the divine, uh, but taking a particular face.
0: Mm. <clears throat> um, I've got a number of questions. Um, actually, I will. I was going to say this later, but I can't resist. Have you come across any living traditions surrounding this text or this thought?
1: Yes, but I haven't, uh, I haven't had the opportunity to do field work. So originally planning this project, I wanted to do a whole year of field work. I applied for the Fulbright Hayes Dissertation Fellowship. This was in 2010 or 11. And this was the year that the United States canceled the Fulbright Hayes uh, program because we were spending too much money bombing Libya. So I didn't get to get funded to go to do, do field work. So the living tradition that i've that i've come across is all just you know through what other people have told me or finding uh, references to it on the internet um so one of the one of the traditional systems of snake bite medicine that is still somewhat alive a living tradition is in kerala and they call it vishavaidya there um partly based on ayurvedic text uh, but also partly based on tantric traditions The the mantra system of it and the visual these tantric visualizations had to go underground uh, during colonialism because the the royals were educated abroad and they were kind of scientifically minded and they didn't have much uh, tolerance for religious healing and so this basically gets excised from the text in Kerala the Malayalam text uh, of the Vishavaja tradition Um, but you know, various people have told me. I've uh, pieced together that that you know, some in manuscript form, these texts uh, that have the mantra portions of of, of the snake bite medicine uh, do still survive. Um, most people won't admit to practicing with mantras. You know, I think there's there's a concern about legal liability uh, for, for one. Uh, so most of the practitioners there will only use herbal remedies, or at least this is what they say. Um, I do get the impression that that mantras are still used, but, you know, silently and not overtly. And they, they would be paired with uh, with herbal remedies.
0: I perhaps talk about this at some point, but I can confirm for you that mantras are certainly used in healing paradigms, whether people are classically trained or their vaidyas, uh, but I can confirm for you that there are a number of um, um, health practitioners, uh, indigenous health practitioners, who uh, adopt these techniques in a covert manner. So I think mm. your suspicion—I know, in fact, your suspicion is bang on. Um, uh, enough about that.
1: Oh, yeah, no, I stuff. mean, and there's there's traditions all over South Asia too. So I lived in Nepal for a year, and um, you know, I got a little bit acquainted with the shamanism there, and some of the the oral text and the mantras that were shared with me um, are seem to be related in some distant way to the Garuda Tantras, like you know, certain structures of the mantras and they're calling on Garuda and identifying him with, with Shiva. And so there's there seems to be a connection there in that living shamanic tradition in Nepal as well. So yeah, South Asia is so huge, um there's there's things going on all over the place that it's it's hard to know everything.
0: Mm, indeed, absolutely. Tell us a bit about how the book is structured.
1: Sure. So there's two main parts. Um, That's like the the most overt structure. Um, The first part is in English, you know, sort of the book part of it, uh, seven chapters plus a short conclusion. Um, Giving an overview of the history, um, you know, the introduction starts with sort of my approach to the topic and some of the methodological concerns. We We can circle back to that later. Um, second chapter, I'm looking at, uh, the early history. So Veda, um, early polycanon, the epics, uh, references to Garuda, references to healing snake bite with mantras, uh, because that's the, the main interest, but also, you know, herbal medicine, uh, is, is in there too. Um, and then the third chapter gets into the proto-tantric and the tantric material, um, which really starts around 6700 CE, so it's it's fairly early. It's pretty it, we, we get references to it in the earliest tantras um, of Shaivism, and we, we get references to it in text of, of a similar date. So um, a lot of those original sources are lost. So um, you know, this is something I have to keep sort of referring to throughout the book is I'm using these sources from several centuries later, uh, but we know from references that that the Garuda Tantras and the Buddha Tantras were a thing. They were fairly influential um even from the the, the seventh century or, or so. Um, So I sort of review what we know about, about that. Um, You know, there's, there's a few sources from these earliest canonical lists that survive. Um, And then I go into chapter four is on the Vipati mantra in particular. And so this is the chapter of the book that I'm most proud of because it's based on the study of manuscripts. Um, So yeah, I'm trying to think how to, how to describe all this without getting too out of order but yeah, the latter half of the book um, is is just the addition and translation of the text, and that makes up a little more than half, actually. Um, and so, this chapter four is most closely based on that textual work, and so I feel like it's the most original thing that the book offers. And it was also the most difficult because the text, you know, reaches us in these manuscripts, never been edited before, um, you know, in, in a modern context, it's never been printed. Uh, and so the manuscripts have errors there's various places where the manuscripts disagree about what words the text is supposed to say and so it's just this really difficult really time consuming process to sort out um, what this system was about and so this I, I feel like this chapter on the the vipati mantra, these five syllables of Garuda is the heart of the book in that sense that I, I put the most work into that section and, um, it really, I, th- I think that that mantra in particular is what made the Garuda Tantras popular. I mean, there's there's other mantras that go along with it. But, you know, there's there's dozens of them, or even even more. Uh, but but that mantra and some of the features of it uh, was was so compelling that I think that this really sealed the popularity of the Garuda Tantras for the next thousand years, um, and and on down to the present. So. Yeah, I could get into specifics, but maybe I'll, I'll have to, I'll circle back so I can kind of finish telling you the, the overview. Um, so the next chapter is uh, on some different mantra systems. One principal one is called Nilakanta. And so, you know, this is based on visualizing a form of Shiva and similar rituals as, as for the, the Vipati system. And then a chapter on snake bite goddesses. And um, yeah, I was already on the podcast earlier talking about uh, my more recent book uh, that involves some translations about goddess narratives. So um, that that was started in this early tantric medicine research. Um, Tuarita is one of them, and there's there's several others, Kurukula and Berunda and Suvarna Reka. So um, very interesting, previously little-known um, goddesses that That these these sources inform us about. And then I have a chapter called Impact, where I just survey, you know, sort of post classical um, Tantra period, the the impacts that the Garuda Tantras seem to have had on Ayurvedic medicine, on, uh, you know, various Puranas, um, on Jainism, on Buddhism, on the Pancharatra, the the Vaishnava Tantra tradition. and impacts on Himalayan art and architecture. And so just, you know, various ways that these texts have, have had influence um, down to the present really. Um, and then I kind of wrap it up. So yeah, like I said, the, the latter half of the book is uh, a rather long edition and detailed translation of this one source Kriya Gunotra, that, um, you know, that, that seems to preserve the earliest account of the Garuda Tantras. So that's, yeah, that's basically the structure.
0: Um, before we dive a little bit into um, the content, you could want to say a word about methodology you mentioned in passing.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so the methodology, I mean, it depends on exactly, you know, which, which part of the book we're talking about. So, well, I mean, yeah,
0: actually, if we yeah. can contextualize for a broader audience, maybe, yeah, you know, yeah. what do, uh, manuscripts, like, what are you talking about? What, what's the state? What's the issue What, what manuscripts? Like what, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so handwritten text, um, you know, there's something, the estimates are that there's like 10 million manuscripts, handwritten books that uh, reach the present. And there was probably tens of millions of others that don't don't reach the present. Um, And this is referring to Sanskrit manuscripts. There's many more in other languages, of course. So India, in pre-modern times, before the printing press and uh, all of this reaches India, it was this probably the most prolific literary culture on the planet. I mean, there was there was like orders of magnitude more reading and writing going on in India than anywhere else in the world, including like, you know, all of Greek and Latin literature is much smaller than the corpus of Sanskrit literature. So it's just this enormous body of writings, of knowledge um, on every imaginable topic. And so these manuscripts are the best way to learn about texts in Sanskrit that haven't been heavily studied, um, and that's, frankly, most Sanskrit texts have not been well studied and they haven't been printed in editions, you know, we, we have maybe five or 10,000 texts that have been printed in editions, but, but there's so many more than that, that, that are only existing in manuscripts that are held in these archives so one of the best archives, the one that I use the most is in Kathmandu because the, the higher elevation of Nepal has um, means like it's a cooler climate and it's less humid. And so manuscripts tended to survive longer. So, you know, there's, of course, millions of manuscripts in India, too, but some of the, the oldest texts um, have died out in India, but survive in these, uh, these manuscripts from further to the north.
0: And so you get a bunch of manuscripts and then what? What do you do with them?
1: Okay, so yeah, get get copies of the manuscripts. Uh, first, I ordered like, you know, copies of the microfilm. These are black and white, pretty legible, uh, but it's nice to work off of color. There's certain details when you're reading the text that, okay, you know, is that this letter, is that that letter? So I went and I photographed the manuscripts uh, at the National Archives in Kathmandu um, with a, you know, a, a digital a digital camera and then worked off those color photographs mostly. Um, occasionally something was was more clear in the black and white so it was nice to have both Um, but yeah you know like i take those photographs um, i make a pdf of the entire text you know of those photographs i make a, a table of contents to that pdf so like you know this chapter starts on this uh leaf of the palm leaf manuscript uh so that i can jump around in the text that way and then, you know, I have it open on the top of my screen, and then I have a text file open on the bottom, and I just start typing. And so it's really difficult to start out because one doesn't know the script very well. It's, you know, it's one, it's handwriting, so it's a lot more difficult to read than uh, than printed text. Um, and then, two, it's just, you know, it's it's an older script. There's There's not really guides for, you know... You know, my, my knowledge of Devanagari Dave, Dave certainly helped for some of the younger manuscripts, but for the the oldest one, which was written about 850 years ago, uh, the the script was more archaic, so it just took a lot of time to um, to figure out because this this isn't a text that has been printed, so I can't look and say, oh, this is saying that. You know, I'm just you know totally alone with the the manuscript and and trying to. Uh, to read it. But over time, you know, over the months of of doing this every day, um, I did become very familiar with the, the handwriting. And so I can I can read it just as quickly as reading a printed text at this point for um you know for those manuscripts that I used.
0: So you've got your file with all of this information that you've deciphered. Yes. And then what?
1: Yeah so um and then you know you're reckoning with different manuscripts because for the Kriya Kaligunotra we have in Nepal there's like six um, main manuscripts that have the whole text they're more or less complete Uh, but then there are also six or seven others uh, in India mainly from Kashmir some from Rajasthan maybe one from Gujarat Um, and these got carried off into different libraries so some of those I got copies from Paris or from London Uh, But, you know, so I, I, I the first step is really to gather all copies of all the manuscripts so that I have have it all there. And then I'm just going through and being like, okay, I'm trying to make sense of the text. And there's this difference here. Sometimes the differences are trivial. It's like they spell something different, but you can still recognize the word. Other times, all of the manuscripts say something that doesn't seem intelligible. And so I think about it for a long time and then I go read other text and, you know, I search through digital text files of of you know thousands of other texts that people have typed in to try to find parallels and so working that way i can often amend the text so this is this is a word we use when the scholar comes up with a a different reading than what the manuscripts say but but which has a rationale behind it which can explain what the manuscripts say so, you know, sometimes it's very simple and you know right away what the correct reading should be and how the error came about, but other times it's more speculative and then, you know, you have to kind of mark it as a conjecture that not really sure what the text should say here, but but maybe it should say this. And so, you know, we have extensive notes that, that go along with it to um, leave a record of our decision. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a methodological thing about this edition of the Sanskrit text is I keep a record of, of everything every manuscript says. And so the reader can, if, if they're reading it, they can refer down and see what the variants are and they can decide. Slober made the right decision here, or Slober didn't make the right decision here, because they can kind of look over my shoulder at, at the the choices that I made and the rationale that I give.
0: And this reminds me of the um, well, well, <laughs> so much of what I do, but the, the Mahabharata's critical edition project, or really the Ramayana, or the uh, or the, yeah. uh, the critically edited Puranas. It's it's um the the stuff that was left out is gold because oftentimes you will you will think, wow, uh, I that um vignette that um, that story that pakiana is like that's the rosetta stone for understanding these two episodes and so you know it, you have the option you know you 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 do the best you can you you yeah. justify your decisions and then you leave um you leave uh, breadcrumbs for posterity <laughs> as
1: you see fit uh, yeah yeah and people have some, even very senior scholars, have this misconception about critical editions that that you know that there's like this mechanical method that you follow that you you know you use to arrive at the final word on a text. And so that's totally not the way it works. There there is no final word. The any edition um, is a hypothesis. A critical edition where you're listing all of those variants is a hypothesis with evidence to back it up. So. Um, so yeah anyone can come along at a later point and make improvements um, or you know see what i've done and and agree with it so it's just preserving all the all the evidence for people to look at
0: yeah so you've got your um you've got your edition that you've agreed that you're going to use for your work and and then what's next up or what was the next step for your particular book
1: yeah, well really that took <laughs> that took probably three quarters of those 10 years as was we're doing the textual work. Oh, but-
0: I believe you. You're 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 a braver man than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, in so, that you know, regard.
1: So but after preparing that, you know, the, the next step for me was contextualizing it. So you know, I had been doing this all along because as I'm reading this text, I want to be reading it in context of what our other Sanskrit texts saying and you know what's up with the, with Garuda being in this this context. Um, so the contextualization was happening all along, but, but I, you know, I don't, didn't write it up until after having done the textual work because, um, you know, that's the textual work is really the, the, the solid base uh, on, on which all those, those other contextualizations are are founded. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that went into this book Um Another thing, you know, you may not expect was that I had to learn quite a lot about um, modern scientific understandings, you know, in the study of toxicology and herpetology, behavior of snakes, and, you know, what what do modern doctors recommend that you do during a snake bite? And, you know, how does antivenom work? And why are people so dismissive of traditional medicine? And so, you know, I, I read a lot of scientific journal articles and I was, you know, it's, I I try to to kind of strike a balance between being very informed about the science, but not letting it make me dismissive of the, this medieval medical system. Um, So I, there's a whole lot of scholars, there's a whole lot of scholarship, there's a whole lot of scientists and doctors that are extremely dismissive of anything that's not modern medicine. They're like, you know, everything that came before was absolute nonsense. It wasn't based on evidence. So that sort of attitude is what prevented this book from being written until, until I got to it, because there was just not any sense that there might be something interesting or valuable there. Um, so,
0: And yet there's, um, I mean, there's, uh, and yet uh, I know a number of Ayurvedic practitioners and yet there is um, a great utility in terms of track record and healing with various paradigms that might be considered more holistic or that that sort of have a model of the human being that is trans-empirical. I mean, there are dimensions that are Sushma, however you want to think of it. Um, and there, there are so many individuals who, whether out of folly or desperation or wisdom, will not gain the results they're looking for through a, a modern Western medical paradigm and gain right. fantastic results elsewhere. And of course, there are a lot of charlatans and a lot of people who are deluded and everything in between. But nevertheless, um, these, right. these systems of medicine have survived for centuries, not because they're complete madness. That couldn't be the case.
1: Right. So, you know, that's the critical thing is that everything in between, that, you know, certain, uh, too many people think of this issue of different systems of medicine as an either or, that it, it, it's, you know, you, you either believe in modern medicine or you don't, you know, and like, it's
0: all uh, I've said this before on this podcast, uh, it's all about the both end for all things indic, especially Sasko narrative, it's all about the both end. But anyway, sorry, continue.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, one one point in favor of this traditional medicine for snake bite is uh, on the herbal remedies side, there have been scientific studies that have taken, you know, these herbs into their lab, They've made extracts of them, injected it into um, to lab rats and also injected the snake venom. And they've shown, you know, without a doubt that that some of these herbal remedies do have amazingly strong antivenom properties that can, you know, snake venom is really strong stuff. Like it can kill you within minutes if it's if it's a bad enough bite. Um, It can totally destroy your tissues, Um, you know, people lose limbs, like it's really strong stuff, but so are certain herbal medicines, and so they've confirmed this in lab studies and there's been a proliferation of this since I wrote the book even I had a student that that sort of looked into what's been done since, and there's just been dozens and dozens of of evaluations of of herbal medicines that, you know, typically not drawn from texts. These scientists are are choosing which ones to evaluate um, based on folk medicine, uh, but but sometimes those two overlap. And so there's a certain plant that that the texts that I work on uh, say use this plant for. It's called palasha in Sanskrit. Uh, they say use this for viper bite. You know, for a particular type of viper, um, and. That one I found there there was a study done, and it's it's remarkable as an anti-venom. So but we're still in this sort of paradigm that the, the scientists doing these studies aren't really being heard by the broader medical community uh, because we're in this paradigm that says anti-venom, like that's that's made by, you know, it, it, this technique that they've been using since the 1800s, but um, you know, they, they milk the venom from the snake, they inject it into a horse. And then they take the horse's blood and they purify out the, the antibodies that the horse creates to counteract the, the snake venom. Um, so that type of anti-venom is what is still rules the day, like all the world health literature is saying, you know, traditional medicine is just a waste of time. like anti- antivenom is the only way to to deal with this issue. Um, but anti-venom comes with its own problems. So yeah, I don't want to go too off track here, but um, you know anti venom can be very allergenic and um, it's not always appropriately used it's not always used in a in a clinic that is well enough equipped so anyway there i think that there's there's a case to be made that some traditional forms of medicine not all of it of course some traditional forms of medicine actually work and might actually hold better potential for non allergenic treatments of snake bite uh, there's not a lot of sympathy for that in the, the global health well, uh, the, the
0: the fact is that we have more evidence that we know what to do with but you have to separate the wheat and the chaff we've got thousands tens of thousands in some cases with some ailments millions of people who are treated in mm-hmm. ayurvedic or, or various paradigms mm-hmm. um, that don't require any sort of belief or um, sleight of hand where they'll give it a shot and they'll Gain the results, and so it's 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 um it, it's when evidence is threatening to worldview, whether in the scientific or political or religious, it's when evidence is threatening to one's the scaffolding in one's mind, the worldview. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's sidelined uh, sometimes uh, to be charitable as a defense mechanism, or or in the interest of, of 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 following a paradigm, and 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 sometimes it's just too difficult to. When they discovered the Indus Valley civilization a century ago, they they just Deduced or assumed that it must be an uh, an offshoot of Mesopotamia because how could such a thing exist? (laughs) How could such a thing exist in um, in South Asia? And so this—it's just clearly we all have biases. Every civilization does. Every every paradigm does. And um, without question, there uh, there's no shortage of studies on the efficacy of various paradigms, including ancient Indic forms of medicine or holistic medicine but i i'm not surprised um uh i'm not surprised at what you say in terms of it it threatens a particular paradigm worldview power structure and so it's it's challenging to to use you know you have to take it take that medicine with a grain of salt so to speak listen what what do you um what do you hope folks most take away from this work
1: yeah, well, I feel like there are four main contributions that it makes. I mean, one is just the Gahirta Tantras exist because before this book, there really like there was a couple a couple scholars that, that had referred to them like with a paragraph or a page, but really like you know didn't say much. They said they're they're basically lost. So a lot of them have have been lost, but they exist. Um, they existed, and a lot of compendia were written on the basis of them. Uh, such as the scriptural compendia, the Kriya Kallagra um, that had, preserves a lot of fascinating materials. So, you know, these are referred to by so many other areas of Sanskrit literature. There's like intellectuals referring to them, poets, philosophers, um, you know, fiction writers, bhakti poets, shamans, yogis. They're all talking about the Garuda Tantras, but like people just feel, like, what is this? Like they're referring to Garuda. like what does that mean? you know, something having to do with snake bites. So, so I feel like that's one of the big, biggest contributions of the book is just like, here it is. This is, this is what it is. This is what it was. Um, and it's, it's something to be aware of because there, there was that lack of awareness, that ignorance before. Um, yeah, I mean, also just the fact that Garuda is not minor in these texts and in many other contexts, that he was he was a pretty important god in the Veda. He was identified with the sun and the sun, you know, with Agni. And, like, you know, this is like major stuff for, for the Vedic religion. Um, so not a minor god, not only the Mount of Vishnu, um, very influential Uh, You know, even just like looking at the news this morning, I I see this you know report about Indonesia and the United States and a bunch of other countries doing these military exercises, and they're calling it the Super Garuda Shield. Like that's happening right now. So I mean, the 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 influence is clearly there all over Asia um, of this of this God, and so. we we have to stop doing the knee jerk thing and just like you know categorizing a deity as as one thing because Garuda uh, was was so much more. Um, other takeaways from the book: mantras are definitely not meaningless or irrational. Um, they may be irrational in uh, in your worldview, in your in one's modern worldview, but they're not irrational to the people that
0: use far 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 from it there is there is um yeah
1: yeah full of meaning um you know so this is this this chapter on the vipati mantra where i get into the nuts and bolts of of what these mantras mean and um so many layers of meaning so many complementary interlocking layers that are that are used in in those rituals so you know a lot of scholars before just were like mantras are meaningless or mantras are bird songs, you know, or, you know, it's just like some unintelligible mumbo jumbo, definitely not the case. So, um, you know, that that's something I want to drive home with this book. Um, and then, yeah, just as we've been talking about, like I want people to take away that we should be more open-minded. That doesn't mean changing what we do. You know, it doesn't mean you don't go to the hospital when you get bitten by a snake. I think people should be safe and do what they need to do. Um, but like intellectually speaking, we can be curious about what other people have done in the past and and what some people still do to this day. Um, why do they do it? How might it work? Or how might it not work? Um, you know, there's there's all sorts of interesting ways that these texts were accurate. Uh, I mean, there's ways that they've obviously there's sort of plenty of ways that they were inaccurate. But there's there's also things that they knew that um, a lot of people, a lot of doctors still don't really fully understand today about how the venom works in the body. Um, I'll give an example of that if, if we have time. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of the things in the text to describe uh, the venom goes through these different tissues in the body. Um, It it starts in the skin, easiest to cure when it's in the skin. Uh, If you get it right away, very easy to counteract the venom. But over time, it goes deeper into the tissues, into the blood, into the muscles, into the, the bone marrow, finally. And so once it settles in the bone marrow, they say it's incurable. So this is remarkably detailed um, kind of physiological description of how venom progresses through the body and you know I found that looking into this this is basically how the really informed scientists understand the the action of anti-venom is that it only works if the venom is freely circulating in the blood if you wait too long to go to the doctor and get anti-venom treatment it's not going to be very effective because the the venom already settles into the tissues. so it's pretty much exactly the way, you know, broadly speaking, it's pretty much the way that they described this over a thousand years ago. So I just continue to be astounded at um, at some of these insights that doctors had with far fewer, you know, far less technology and, uh, you know, sophisticated tools that we have today, that they really got some things very right.
0: Well, it, it really seems to me, and I, I, this is an idea that comes up relatively frequently in teaching contexts um in conversations it, it seems to my mind um a sort of uh, a glaring conceit yeah. that uh pre moderns uh were unthinking or i mean look at uh, i mean pe uh, uh, listen in in human experience there are always going to be people who are extraordinarily um good at scrutinizing, picking up our ideas, critically thinking, figuring out how something works, whether that's yeah. uh, whether that's a chariot or whether that's a human body, whether it's it's building a temple. Uh, this would have always been the case. Uh, yeah. there, there, there's no, there's no reason whatsoever to question whether or not the ancients were capable of critical thinking and practical application of knowledge. I think what trips people up is the code switching. Between yeah. spiritual or, or 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 sort of sukshma modes versus stula modes, and I yeah. think folks take that code switching as evidence of the inability to think straight. Yeah. And I think you know, an Ayurvedic doctor, a naturopath, or whomever, you've got to cut if you need an if you need an antibiotic or if you need a bandaid or you need gauze, then that's what you're going to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think. I, 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 part of the reason why I arrived at this is because I know a number of practitioners who are fully capable of treating um, a gross problem on the gross level. And I'll use an example. This hits home for me because in the last uh, couple of years, I've had more health issues than I've had in my whole life combined Four or five relatively, um, you know, it, it, issues have cropped up and it was instinctive to me. I'm like, this, this can't be the case. This these these are cropping they can't be a case there's a stroke of bad luck or whatever there's got to be something in the physiology i don't know enough about physiology Mm -hmm. you know um i'm 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 a bit of a rebel of someone of south asian descent in that i didn't study medicine or engineering (laughs) anyhow um um and it but was I only was
1: very, very... that there was something deeper going on. The, the, it
0: was about. it was abundantly clear to me, both in terms of what I was feeling in my body, but also to my rational mind, that these things can't just crop up out of nowhere, and they seem unrelated, but they can't be, because I haven't had any of these issues before. They're all cropping up within twelve to eighteen months. I go to an Ayurvedic doctor, highly skilled Ayurvedic doctor. Um, but uh, also highly skilled in, in in you know regular western medicine, and within two minutes, he points to the syndrome that is the underlying cause of all of this, and if you Google it, there is even a great Mayo Clinic article on this. It's not that allopathic medicine is not aware of this. It's that folks aren't always good at thinking holistically or pattern recognition. Right. Mm-hmm. So folks get, and the smarter we get, and the more we study, the more in a crevice we live. Right. Mm-hmm. And so two minutes, it's like, this is the syndrome, this, this, this. And he even alluded to two other issues that I didn't even mention to him because I didn't want to overburden him. He's like, you're going to have this. You're going to have this probably. I'm like, yep. Cause he was able to see a broader picture. Yeah. So nice. uh, that's not to say that that's not to say that there isn't a whole lot of you know dogma, superstition, and God knows what in a variety of religious traditions and texts and paradigms. But uh, I couldn't agree with you more that um, that that we need to consciously overcome the conceit that other modes of medicine or anything before you know um, 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 a certain century in European culture was capable of. Yeah. Rational thought, Right.
1: Absolutely. And also just the lumping together, like, you know, any biomedical doctor is going to be able to make that diagnosis. No, you know, like, like, like you're saying, a lot of them are not seeing the bigger picture, which isn't to say that none of them would, because, you know, some might be really spot on and present when they're, you know, talking to you and uh, evaluating your symptoms and some wouldn't. So, you know, you, you can't just say this whole system is wrong or this whole system is right. Yeah. There's the individual doctors that have their their talents that absolutely um, may be able to treat you or or not.
0: Absolutely. Um, is there um, let's see whether any uh, whether any other food groups that should be on the buffet? Um, is there anything else about the uh, the book or your uh, your journey that you like to share?
1: Um, yeah, another food group poison, because sometimes poison was used as a medicine, very, very dangerous, uh, very interesting. But I think, you know, we're, we're probably getting a little over time. So I could uh, leave that
0: I, I'm I'm perfectly, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I've got the time I don't have a I don't have a, 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 a commitment in the next hour. So I'm okay. And if folks are bored, which they won't be they can always <laughs> fast forward. It's a podcast. So go for it.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. So These early texts that I edited um, refer to using poisons, plant poisons, medicinally, um, both to counteract snake venom in some cases and just as a general tonic or to heal other health conditions. Um, They handle it fairly cautiously. You know, by the standards of a thousand years ago, they say don't use it in these conditions for people that are very young or very old. And they say, you have to do a test for what's basically an allergic reaction. You you have the person hold a little bit of the plant venom in their hand and see how their body reacts to it. And then they start very slowly by giving these minute amounts um, and, you know, claim very, very grand benefits. I mean, I think a lot of the claims are just way over the top, like, oh, you'll live for 300 years and still look like you're 16. Um, I don't believe that. But, you know, maybe some of well, the audience... It's, ar-
0: it's art of auto, right? It's hyperbole.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think one has to be really careful with this sort of thing. I, you know, it has to be stated that this wouldn't work for all types of poison, even taking my new amounts, because some poisons build up over time in the body. And so, One doesn't wanna dabble with this um, without truly understanding it. But it's not as off the wall as it might first appear because if you think about it, you could compare to modern pharmacology, there's a lot of pharmaceutical drugs that doctors prescribe that are essentially poisons. I think of warfarin for one, um, marketed as coumarin. It's like uh, used as a blood thinner to prevent blood clots for people that have had a stroke. this was started as a rat poison, like it literally is a poison. And so sometimes older people that I've talked to joke about it, but you know, it's literally a poison that's used medicinally in modern medicine. So one has to know what one's doing and get the dosage right and, you know, not take a poison that builds up in the body. But, But in principle, this idea is not as off the wall as it may appear at first glance. So if one comes into it with an open mind, one can sort of see the logic of, uh, of how it might have worked.
0: Fascinating. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to um, touch on a couple of things you mentioned at the outset about your journey and your interests and, and you've gone into this field of research and, and writing this book has your perspective changed since you were in middle school about magic? Um, First of all, magic in terms of, um, uh, you know, a magician, uh, a magician as an illusionist versus a magician as for lack of a better word, an occultist, you know, um, has your, has your perspective changed? I wonder in that journey. And also um, when you say magic, or or when you say, you know, considering some of these um, references or practices as magical, I'm not going to ask you to define that because that's uh, that's a ridiculous yeah. thing to do. Yeah. But I, but I wonder if that's do you mean is that does that roughly equate um, the supernatural? Is that what you yes. mean by magic?
1: That's what I was going to say. That and that is how I would define it. If you're going to put me on the spot to define, no, it. no,
0: I I wouldn't put you um, on the spot. <laughs> no,
1: no, but that's exactly what I was going to say. Is supernatural that that it's maybe it's claiming to work supernaturally or at least it um, the way that it works is is not. Um, doesn't seem to be based on the laws of nature so that's that's what i mean by magic but um yeah the the line between magic and religion is very blurry and in the west that idea of magic has tended to be used to disparage traditions like you know magic as opposed to religion which is
0: folks don't call the eucharist magic right (laughs) but
1: but I, i would you know not draw the fine line in the sand there um so if my perspectives changed um Yes and no. I mean, I feel like I'm probably more careful and more skeptical than I was, you know, when I was 13 years old, I was, I was more naive. I didn't believe everything at that point though, you know, I, but, but I had a stronger desire to believe than than I do now. Um, so, you know, I've kind of found the, the middle point of neither believing nor disbelieving that, um, I would like it if supernatural things were were real and I've had experiences that I can't explain but I'm not a believer. You know, I'm not going to be out there saying people should believe this and I'm not, you know, sure that that my experiences were supernatural I just don't know how else to explain them. So I feel like that kind of in between is a comfortable place for me and I feel like more people should be able to find that place in between that you're not stuck into belief or disbelief
0: well it seems to my mind ironically as a more objective mode of inquiry Mm -hmm. where one isn't tethered by what one expects to find your belief Mm -hmm. or one has an, an open you know a more open mind in terms of what one is engaging in and having that sort of um that openness to possibility um, and in its absence, one has blind spots and one may miss certain things because one is looking at certain things in certain ways. And I think, I think the fact that you're more careful and skeptical, oh, uh, to my mind, yay, the academy is done its job. I mean, because you know, after three degrees, one would hope <laughs> on some level, having said that, and I return to this idea over and over again, when people are studying the human experience and humans... clearly what's going on is more than meets the eye and one has to leave room for the possibility that we're more than uh bots made of flesh right like there's stuff going on right clearly um so we
1: need to be humble yeah because you know knowledge now is not what knowledge was a hundred years ago and it's not what knowledge will be a hundred years from now and so we need to be a little bit humble and understand that there may be things going on that we can't explain now that we'll be, we will be able to explain later.
0: Right. And are there other types of knowledge? So, so, so are there, are there types of knowledge uh, that are derived uh, through different means, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So thank you for indulging.
1: (laughs) And (laughs) nonverbal, nonverbal knowledge too, because, you know, we tend to think everything that is knowledge can be written down, but there's certain ways of knowing and bodily ways of knowing that, cannot be easily put into words um, that have to be transmitted through touch and for example so.
0: or glance
1: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> um thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today
1: yeah thank you for having
0: me for those of you listening we've been speaking with uh Dr. Michael Stuber on his fascinating OUP 2017 publication Early Tantric Medicine Snake Bite Mantras and Healing in the Garuda Tantras Um, Until next time, keep well, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and uh, keep contemplating the mysteries of medicine. Take care.